When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the very first Rock Me Cast. This is going to be a podcast about everything that I, Rock Me Cole, find interesting. As I indicated, my name is Rock Me Cole. I'm a lawyer, former city councilor, and I love all sorts of ideas. I love a good debate. I love learning. I love liberal arts. I love all of you. This has got to be a podcast where you and I are going to agree on everything. We're going to argue with one another. We're going to learn from one another. We're going to engage. But most of all, we're going to entertain one another. This is going to be a progressive podcast. That's my point of view. That's the way I organize and see the world. I'm a progressive. But even so, libertarians, conservatives, even you, pragmatic centrists, you are all going to be welcomed on this show. You know, libertarians and conservatives, you are not as right as you think that you are. In fact, you are wrong about most quite everything. You think you know, but you don't. And so I think I hope that I can engage you, teach you some things, educate you, persuade you why you're wrong. But that said, you are right on a few things. You're not wrong about everything. And so this podcast is also going to be about the conservative ideas that I like, some of the libertarians' ideas that I like, because I firmly believe that none of us have a perfect glimpse on reality. We all have a partial view, and we're all trying to learn, we're all trying to gauge, and I think we need to approach our ideas with that humility that we can really learn from one another. It is going to be a progressive podcast, however. That is my bias. That is my point of view. It's going to cover local, state, national issues. But it's not just going to cover politics. It's going to cover everything that I, Rockney Cole, find interesting. I'm going to have absolute editorial control. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. It's a free country. But we're going to have a lot of fun. I think one of the things that we progressives have failed to do is that we take we take ourselves too seriously. We don't have fun. We don't laugh. We don't entertain one another. So that's what the goal of this podcast is going to be, is we're going to not take ourselves so, fury, so seriously. We're going to laugh at ourselves. We're going to make a lot of jokes. We're going to rib the conservatives where necessary, but we're going to have a lot of fun. And so being a progressive podcast, I thought it'd be good for our very first show to focus on what's next for the progressive movement after the recent announcement by Bernie Sanders that he is no longer uh, seeking the presidency. Um, He did not get over the hump. It's looking like Joe Biden is going to be the party nominee. We're going to look at what worked for the Sanders campaign. Most importantly, I think what didn't, um, what we can learn. Uh, one word that we're going to use is postmortem. I don't necessarily like that as a, as a term for a variety of reasons, given our present circumstance. Because I think really the end of this particular campaign was not really a, um, a loss or it wasn't the end. It was really the end of the beginning. And I think we see the seeds of the future in what happened over these last 12 months. And I think it's important that we take what we can learn and acknowledge where we can improve for future movement issues and associated with the progressive movement. I'm going to be joined by Greg Johnson. Uh, Greg's a lot like me. He's a big guy. Um, He's a big nerd, just like I am. We're two nerds that love ideas. Uh, But most importantly, we love a good conversation, and we love to exchange ideas and discuss various issues. He's also a man of the liberal arts as well. Uh, He's a very interesting person. Uh, His father uh, worked for the great Lyndon Baines Johnson as one of the first uh, commissioner for the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission. 
And uh, Greg's just a great guy. And we'll share a little bit more about our history. He will uh, join us quite frequently on this show. Uh, and he is a very interesting person. So I think you'll really love Greg and, and follow what, he's, what he does as well. So certainly we'll be joined by Greg and we'll move forward with a very interesting discussion on what's next for Bernie Sanders and the progressive movement. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Greg Johnson. How's it going, Greg? Hey, Rockney. It's going well. Good to uh, be on RockneyCast with you. Thank you. It's a true honor to have you on as our very first guest. Today, as I told our audience, we're going to discuss sort of the meaning of Bernie Sanders. Um, as many people know, uh, he did drop out of the presidential race this past week. Uh, there's been a lot of postmortems, reviews of what happened. I think it's very important to sort of, one, assess the accomplishments of the campaign, but also sort of looking forward, what do we see into the future regarding the progressive movement? Because I think some of the parts of the campaign uh, for Bernie Sanders clearly worked, other parts not so much. And so I think for people that are interested in progressive politics, I really think we need to sort of diagnose not only what worked, um, but what didn't work. And I don't know, Greg, sort of what is your sort of first blush impression in terms of your view of what happened with, one, what were some of the positive things that you viewed Bernie Sanders as accomplishing? Well, my first impression was in 2016 when I went to caucus for Bernie, um, and I was just really impressed to see a high school, you know, gymnasium filled with people, uh, half of whom were Bernie supporters, because I, as a progressive, I've always ended up in this tiny group over in the corner of three people and then everybody else is the mainstream and I never expect to have my candidate of choice get more than you know three percent five percent nine percent of the popular support uh, so I, I was really surprised and so again this year seeing millions of people and what seemed to be half of uh, the Democratic Party coming out in support for Bernie. I was inspired by that. But in my mind, whether I'm looking to the past or the present or the future, I've always sensed that progressives are, it's like the United States is similar to other countries where there are, you know, like a dozen different political parties that are all equally impactful, you know. And so we don't have just two political parties. Um, and uh, Robert Reich has commented on this, that Republicans, for example, have, you know, four or five different factions and Democrats have four or five different factions. We have about 10 different political parties in the U.S. And so as someone with sort of progressive views, I uh, align that way, but I recognize um, there's, the, well, no way in the immediate future that progressives are just going to snap their fingers and suddenly become, you know, 99% of the Democratic Party, um, and I'm okay with that, you know, to be just a part of a larger party mechanism, but having an identified group and some uh, views and policies that I align with. Um, and so I think Republicans are that way as well. They're small groups that realize, okay, they're, they're a small part of a larger organization, but they're going to have influence in that way by being part of that larger organization. So calls for, you know, progressives to just quit the Democratic Party and start their own, you know, sort of equivalent to the Green Party or something, um, I think that doesn't seem like that's going to pan out into being anything uh, substantial. And so I'm not necessarily, I'm, I'm disappointed that Bernie didn't win uh, for a lot of reasons, which I guess we'll talk about, but um, I'm not disappointed in my realization of, okay, progressives are still there. They're still having an impact. They're still changing the dialogue um, nationally and globally. And so we just keep moving ahead and keep positive uh, among ourselves and with others, you know? You know, one of the very interesting things I think Greg is is sort of how numerous the progressive movement actually are or the leaders of the movement are because I think one of the critiques of a lot of centrist I think in the Joe Biden mold is come on guys you guys are a relatively small number of people you do not know how to win national elections ultimately sort of get real and when I hear that, it sort of makes me want to pull my hair out, because if you look at one of the most successful, inspirational leaders of the last hundred years, who is that? That is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Franklin Delano Roosevelt saved capitalism from itself. 
He provided hope to millions of people. He saved so many people from the brink of desperation and starvation. He defeated fascism. He did two incredible things, and he did that in spite of overwhelming opposition from various members of Congress, from the courts, and he did it through popular people power. Uh, you know, one of the things that Greg is a very humble guy, but he does actually come from a very uh, distinguished family in the city of Iowa City. His father is uh, Nick Johnson, a former professor of law emeritus at the University of Iowa Law School, who was a quite prominent commissioner for Lyndon Baines Johnson in the 1960s. And the reason why I bring that up is, is we had this incredible period of 30 years where we did incredible things as a country. We passed Social Security, providing income and job security to virtually, uh, or disability security, to, to virtually everyone in the United States who earned a paycheck. And for those that didn't, we also had the supplemental security disability income. We provided in the 1960s Medicare for everyone over 65. We set the foundation for um, various civil rights initiatives, culminating in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 1965. We implemented FDR, and I say we, I'm saying progressives, implemented the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, saving banks and making a stable banking system. The list goes on and on and on and on, Greg. And so when I hear centrists lecture us about get real, my response to them is, you get real. We have a 35-year track record of success that still exists with us today, but we have not had any major policy achievements in the last 40 years because I think we've given in to sort of the Bill Clinton third-way critique, which is we just need to be pragmatic. We need to cut and trim. And, of course, at some level, I think Bill's right, but I think really what it did is it really hurt us. Um, and so back to Bernie, what Bernie's basically able to say is, is like, look, guys, what I am saying is not radical for Medicare for all. When I talk about environmental policy, as um, AOC indicated, really what I'm doing is, is I'm bringing our party back to our roots when we were our most successful. And if you're going to look at who's going to inspire, who's going to move the needle, are we going to look to the past 30 to 40 years of banal centrism, or are we going to look to the exciting dynamic period of civil rights, New Deal, um, Medicare for all. And these are things that we can achieve in the future. And I think that's really what Bernie did is that he stopped apologizing. He said, here's what I believe. Here's what we can do if we work together as a country. And to me, it, you know, Bernie is probably one of the most inspiring campaigns of the last at least 45 years in my view. I'd say the, the closest historical parallel um, was the progressive presidential movement of Henry Wallace, the great Iowan Henry Wallace in 1948, uh, where he brought all sorts of people from throughout the United States together in a very inspiring campaign. So to that degree, I think he really succeeded. Unfortunately, there were some negatives. I don't know if you want to comment on this perceived Bernie bro issue. Um, what were the negatives that I think you viewed of the Bernie Sick campaign? What, what, what can we learn from it in terms of what not to do again? Well, yeah, certainly I think what happens is when some group gets ahead, when they're football team is winning they become more rowdy and obnoxious or when you know uh whoever their their party is that and their their candidate is who wins and becomes the president somehow you would think they would just kind of relax a little bit but that causes some people to get sort of rowdy and unpleasant and that's just i guess human nature um so as and, and you know it's unfortunate because if if a person is a bernie supporter and you see Bernie sort of lagging in the polls, um, you might tend to, you know, be more polite to people and think, oh boy, we've really got to, you know, win more people over. So I'm going to be more polite and conciliatory. And then once you see Bernie's far ahead in the polls, you feel like, oh, well, now I can be obnoxious and it doesn't matter because we're going to win anyway. There, there's that sort of, and I, I'm using the Bernie uh, situation as an example, but it applies. To, it's not just specific to Bernie and his followers. It applies to just about anything, like you know the sports analogy I used. Um, and so, you know, that was really unfortunate. And then the other thing is, any group, any group can become vilified and stigmatized by the bad actions of a few people who may or may not even be fully aligned with the group. But you know, so uh, and and. An example of this that I've been interested in over the years is how um, 
police certainly have room to grow in terms of uh, correcting some uh, racial biases and, and corruption and whatever um, that may be systematic whatnot. But let's say there are 800,000 police in the United States, and let's say that you know, 790,000 of those are just doing their job and they're doing a good job. But it's the 10,000 police that are doing something wrong that are going to end up on YouTube, that are going to end up becoming the poster children for uh, the police. And so same with, say, the Bernie crowd. There are a lot of, you know, 90% of the Bernie supporters are polite and pleasant and well-informed and willing to work with others. You get a handful of sort of uh, what are perceived to be kind of radical, almost, you know, militant, some of them. And that that's what's newsworthy. That's what's going to end up on, uh, you know, the evening news as, oh, here's what the Bernie bros are doing, when really that's not representative of Bernie's supporters uh, at large. You know, I, I think you bring up a really good point, Greg. This whole concept of the Bernie bro, I think to some degree, the issue is, is who even came up with that? Because I'll only sort of share my own individual experience. I went to three Bernie Sanders rallies um, here, one in Iowa City, one in Coralville, and one at the Iowa Memorial Union. And I'm telling you, I did not experience any of the toxicity associated with the Bernie bro. And by that, I think it's become almost a caricature, which is almost a form of sort of toxic masculinity, um, know-it-all politics. I did not observe that. And let me share what I actually observed uh, at some of the various events that I went to. Multiple generations of black, white, brown, um, people from all walks of life, old and young, Jews, atheists, Christians, Muslims. It was probably one of the most beautiful um, patchwork quilts that I've experienced in my lifetime. Um, it was not religious in that sense, but it did have a lot of passion and inspiration. I'll share one, one particular event that I went to at the Iowa Memorial Union. It was done by a uh, Black Lives Matter. I was one of the speakers, Philip Agnew, uh, who has been actively involved in calling out um, police misconduct. And I, I tell you what, I agree 100%. I think the key issue is, is for those police that are not in a position uh, to control themselves and are, and are bad actors, I think most law enforcement would agree, and in fact, a lot of cases, hopefully would agree that they should be, you know, removed from their position because it does, it is really a law enforcement issue. But Philip Agnew from Black Lives Matter, who has done a lot on police brutality and calling it out in Chicago, was the son of a uh, Baptist preacher, and he gave really one of the most inspirational um, speeches I've heard in my lifetime. And here's what we did. See if this matches the Bernie bro critique. He asked the entire crowd to hold hands. And then he asked us, he said, have you ever been a victim of sexual assault? If so, squeeze the hand of the neighbor next to you. Have you ever been the victim of um, various incidents of racism? If so, squeeze your hand of the person next to you. You know, we've become a, a culture that is very uncomfortable with physical touch, even more now so uh, with the COVID virus. And it was just really incredible where we shared those vulnerabilities with one another, but it was also very inspirational in the sense that we don't have to put up with sexual assault as a country. We don't have to put up with racism. We don't have to put up with people that are marginalized, that, that don't have opportunity. We don't have to have 40 million people that are not um, without health insurance. We don't have to have people working every single day of their life and still remain mired in poverty. It's not fair and it's not right, and we can solve it. We can do something about it. It is not set in the cards. You know, we've had inspirational leaders. You know, we're very fortunate in the state of Iowa. We have one, probably one of the most dynamic progressives um, in the, I think, in the country in some respects is Stacy Walker. Um, the inspirational messages that that he's given. So I just did not observe that, and I think. I got called by the Daily Iowan as a Bernie Sanders supporters in terms of giving my views. And I think really once he could not do the rallies with COVID, I think for the most part it was almost over. But once he could not do those rallies, those were absolutely so key because it's the only way that he could speak directly to people, person to person, touching hearts, persuading people, building that grassroots momentum. 
Without that, because of the media, the obstacles, I think it really became almost impossible to overcome. And I think at some point he realized that he had to put the interests of the country ahead of his own. So it was a very tough decision that he made. But I'm telling you, Greg, did, did you ever have an opportunity to go to any of those events um, in 2020? Uh, you know, I was so immersed in his campaign in 2016 and went to one of the early events, which was at the Iowa City Community Center, and there were overflow crowds even back then. Um, and I, I took my video camera because there was a woman who was at home and could not go to the event. She had contacted me through Facebook and I said, oh, well, I'll just make a video so you can watch it, you know. And I put that video on YouTube and within days and weeks, it had over 30,000 views of just some little gathering of you know, Bernie in Iowa City with a thousand people, which was a small crowd for him back then, um, and that that was a an indicator for me of how powerful his message was and how much it was resonating. Um, you know, most of my videos get twelve views, so I just thought that was amazing. But yeah, I, I agree with you that the the mix of people that he would draw from so many different backgrounds uh, and you know, ages, etc., was just really inspiring. And I have a video, which I think I've shared with you, is some clips that I gathered from Republicans talking about Bernie Sanders. And consistently, I have like a dozen different Republican leaders saying that they respect him, they trust him, they believe he's sincere. I mean, just sounds like endorsements, you know. Um, so he really has some respect across the aisle, which is important, I think, for any leader. There, there was a moment when Marco Rubio, you know, was running for president, and, and he started talking about the work that he had done with Bernie Sanders to help veterans. You know, it's that kind of thing. We can't just have some ideologue off in the corner ready to fight everyone else. Uh, and so Bernie offers that, and, and I think that message resonated with everyone else um, for the most part. You know, we kept hearing from, mostly I would hear it from, from Democrats, um, more than Republicans, but that Bernie was a, a radical and that some of these ideas were just too, you know, socialist, communist, like he wants people to get a college education. And I'd listen to that. Well, and then I'd find out that that people can already get a free college education in red states like Tennessee with conservative Republican governors um, like uh, Bill Haslam, who, you know, started this. And now Bill Lee, I believe, is the governor. So their state's already you know, can be done, has been done, is being done by Republicans. Um, Utah reduced chronic homelessness by 97%. All these things that Bernie's talking about, they're not radical, they're not impossible, they're being done, and they're being done by the, the people that we, you know, we think are against Bernie. Somehow this whole idea that, well, we can't support Bernie because he's too radical, I think that's something that somehow is made up among Democrats, really. Because when I talk to Republicans, they're not afraid of Bernie, you know, until they need to, you know, beat that drum. Uh, but often they use Democrat talking points to do so. So, yeah, I, I think that's one area where we can grow uh, in, in, in focusing on outcomes. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether it's a progressive or, you know, a moderate or Republican who's creating these programs that help people get an education. It doesn't matter who's doing it or what specific mechanisms they're using as long as everybody's getting job training and getting a job and getting a, uh, the education and, and the work and the health care that they need. Um, and, and homeless people are getting off the streets. I'm not going to protest it if it happens to be, you know, in a Republican state. Um, we just need to support these outcomes and kind of do away with some of the labels and the alignments that cause us to fight amongst each other when there need not be any fighting. Greg, can I say hear, hear, hallelujah, amen? I'm raising my hands in agreement with you because one of the things that just drives me absolutely nuts is this whole notion of the sounds good in theory but does not work in practice. When people raise that as a critique of Bernie-ism, the ideas of Bernie, it, it, it really does, it, it makes me sad because to me, if you look at what it's based upon, 
of course it is based upon, to some degree, a set of ideals. But more importantly, it's based upon a track record. One of the reasons why he so strongly supports Medicare for all is because Medicare, the existing program, has been one of the most successful programs in the history of the United States with some of the lowest healthcare costs and some of the most effective healthcare outcomes. Social Security, when it was implemented, people viewed it as socialism. In fact, it was borrowed from socialists like Eugene Debs in, in a lot of respects. And it has been one of the most durable programs that has pulled so many elderly people, people with disabilities out of extreme poverty and been extremely successful. So these are not ideas that he's pulling from another planet that have never worked, what worked at all. He is expanding time-tested ideas. And you bring up a lot of our Republicans. You know, the greatest irony, I think, with, and this is something I wish Bernie would do and progressives would do more often, is that there is a business case, a profit case, for the ideas of Bernie. This idea that he is somehow anti-business, and I think some some respects is because of the own rhetoric that he uses when he rips capitalism. If you look at what he's actually done, what he's trying to do is expand opportunity, but the language I think he got caught up in being this radical, bringing the revolution, but really what he was talking about was evolution. So if, take, for example, single-payer health care. What is one of the most important aspects? There's two important aspects to that. One is expanding coverage, because you just cannot have a system in which 40 million people don't have health care, and they go into the emergency room for day-to-day -day medical care. That drives up costs for all of us. But more importantly, Greg, what about that business case? Right now, small businesses, medium-sized businesses, and you know big businesses are paying usurious rates for bad coverage. How is that good for business? So what if, instead of some people paying a lot and some people paying a little, that we adopted the wisdom of the New Deal and that we added a payroll tax that was essentially graduated based upon the income that you make? So everyone contributes and that we have negotiating power of the federal government and we see a decrease in those costs, that is a good thing for existing businesses. It will help their bottom line. Secondly, what about entrepreneurship? What is the greatest obstacle to starting a business? For a lot of people, it's their health care. If they don't have their own health care, they're not able to start their own business. And you know, I've heard a lot of conservatives talk about personal responsibility with health care. And that is a situation that I just view just to be simple, pure, unmitigated ignorance. Of course, there's some aspect of personal responsibility with healthcare, no doubt about it. We can have situations where you have uh, someone that has a lifestyle, they're not exercising, they're eating too much, yeah, smoking, that's another example of personal responsibility. But how do they respond to someone that has a pre-existing medical condition? How do they respond to a child who has done nothing wrong other than being born to a set of parents that don't have health care? How do they explain that to someone that's in a car, car accident through no fault of their own for an uninsured person, right? So there's a lot of things that lead to that. And what this does is, is that health care, which is Bernie's singular issue, is a lot like police protection, is a lot like fire protection. We don't negotiate, we don't have police insurance. Can you imagine if every time you had to call the police, they had to have, to have your police card before you get coverage? Every time there was a fire, they would only go to the places where you had fire insurance to pay for the fire truck? No, these are shared costs. And by everyone paying a little, we all benefit a lot. So I think that's one of the things that I think Bernie, I think really made a mistake on is this constantly railing against billionaires. I think that was a huge mistake. I think it's wrong to rail about billionaires. I don't think all of them are crooks, and he said that far too often. I think there's a huge difference between Steve Jobs and Pablo Escobar. Those are two billionaires. 
Pablo Escobar is a drug dealer and thief. We're talking on an iPhone right now that was developed by Steve Jobs. I don't think Warren Buffett is a terrible person. And that's just the reality of the situation we're in. So I think moving forward, I think we need to really not talk about the whole Billy, like that they're all thieves. I think that that, that argument is something that uh, maybe appeals to a small set of people, but there's a lot of people that are just totally turned off by that because they just view it as, hey, you know what, I run a business, I'm not a thief, I work really hard. So I think that's really a mistake that he made. Um, I don't know, what, what's your take on that in terms of you know the business case for progressivism? I think you'd brought up, for example, the uh, community colleges. Isn't it good to have an educated workforce and that the work, and that the bosses don't have to pay for all this? So I think these are things that he could really, he could have, it was a seam that went unmined that I think he made a big mistake on. Well, as a small business owner myself, or really just being an independent consultant doing tech work and websites, um, I can speak a little bit to that. I, I wanted to write an article about this topic of how you know the cost of healthcare is uh, just one more way in which huge sums of money are being siphoned out of our country. You know, we've seen that with other industries like banking and then their bailouts or the oil companies and then there's bailouts and they continue to make billions of dollars whether they get bails, bailouts or not. Um, but the airline industries, the cruise industries are asking for bailouts, you know, these multi-billion dollar industries and that in any of them, and particularly with healthcare, you hear about these exorbitant uh, increases in cost for medication, for example, um, and even for just healthcare procedures that we're, we're spending so much. And so I, that was what I wanted to write about. Well, then, before I could even write that article, a phone call came in from one of my computer support customers, and we had been planning on working on a project that was going to really help this person out. I enjoy what I do. It's it's fun to you know help others, and certainly the, the money helps pay the bills, um, but I just, I like to help people out. So she called and said, hey, I have some bad news. I had to get some, uh, some health care services done and um, and I don't know what all that involved but uh, either you know the medication or the cost of the health uh, care that was provided was going to set this person back for such a long time and that they weren't going to be able to spend money on a new computer and probably weren't going to be able to spend money on a lot of things and whether it's you know uh, these medications that used to be a dollar that are now $300 or the EpiPen or whatever, there's so many examples of this, you know, it's price gouging, it's extortion, it's, you know, not necessarily uh, physically threatening somebody, but their their life is physically threatened because they've got this health problem. They don't have a choice. Um, you know, capitalism works great in a competitive marketplace with little things that people don't need as essentials. You know, capitalism does not work well in marketplaces where there is a monopoly and where the product is life or death. You know, that's that's not what capitalism works best with. And so, even in Iowa City, is a great community. We have one wonderful health care here, but you get two choices. It, it's like choosing between, you know, CenturyLink or Mediacom for your internet service. You get two choices. And when it comes down to a monopoly or a duopoly, the quality of the outcomes is not very good. The cost goes up, there are no checks, there's no competition, and it's a really serious problem. And I started thinking, you know, the people who took that woman's money um, that from what I understand, it ended up being a lot more money than it really should have been. Uh, it, was, it was, I sort of felt like they took my money too, you know? I mean, like, I, I had this project I was going to work on and get paid for, and now I don't have that money. And she doesn't have the money. And the person that has that money just kind of put it away with the other billions of dollars that they have that they're siphoning from America. And so that troubles me. And, you know, recently there was a study done in Iowa to look at um, how has the cost and how have the outcomes changed in Iowa for Medicaid uh, when Medicaid became um, privatized? And I thought, well, you know, privatization of Medicaid, you would think maybe that would produce some good results. The costs would go down. No, the costs went way up. So, you know, we shifted from this model of the state running it to having these 
private companies running it. And whether it's, you know, private companies running prisons or running healthcare systems, it just doesn't quite work out well. So anyway, I'll get off my stump there, but I just felt like this healthcare problem is kind of gotten out of control and it's impacting small businesses because as you say, as a small business owner for yourself, if you're, you have a spouse or kids, you could spend 1200 or more dollars to get really good full coverage. And, and then on top of that, $1,200 per month, on top of that, you're going to spend $3,000 uh, a, with a good plan um, is your out-of-pocket costs. And then on top of that, you're going to spend 10% of whatever you're paying for the services. Um, and it's just, uh, I, we could probably do a totally separate show on this topic. But anyway, you get the idea. And that was the central flaw, I think, with Bernie. He tried to promise too much to too many people. So I think really moving forward, I think when the progressives talk about what really they want to focus on, they really need to focus on the big issues and just nail them rather than thin slicing it so much. I think you bring up a really good point. And, and the thing is, is that the issue with Medicaid, you know, one of my pet peeves with conservatives especially of the libertarian variety, is that they're so confident in their views. They've read their Ayn Rand. They've read their Milton Friedman Newsweek articles. And apparently, once they've learned that, they essentially adopt that for nearly everything, regardless of whatever the facts are. And you see that even with the recent COVID crisis, is that you know whether it's shelter in place or not shelter in place, regardless of what the data is, they will never change their mind. And so you brought up Medicaid, which is easily predicted that you would see that, because what is the purpose of a business, Greg? Can you answer that question for me in the private industry? What's the purpose of a business? Well, yeah, certainly. I mean, you want to make profits for the stakeholders and the stockholders, yeah. and the CEOs are expecting, you know, triple-digit incomes, and that's that's what happens in that kind of a marketplace. But yeah, you certainly yeah, don't yeah. want those as your goals when you're providing some, you know, life-supporting service to someone who's sick. That is the purpose of business. The purpose of business is to make money. And so when you provide healthcare in the private setting, what is your goal? Your goal is to maximize the gross revenue and minimize the cost. When the Medicaid supplier is supplying services, what is the cost? That is the healthcare provided to the patient. What is their incentive to minimize what they produce to the patient? This was so easily predictable. And now, even in spite of the overwhelming evidence of the horrible outcomes that we have received with privatization of Medicaid, do we think the conservatives or the Republicans are going to change their mind? And just quickly, what's your short answer to that, Greg? Uh, no. <laughs> They're so ideologically blinded by their politics that they're unable to process new data. And I think with Bernie, Bernie understood that. But one of the problems with Bernie, I think this maybe gets into another problem with Bernie, is that he felt like it was so self-evidently obvious. He sort of got himself into a little bit of a trap of sort of a series of just sort of platitudes that he would just sort of state as conclusions. Well, of course you need health care. Of course you need to have Medicare for all. The billionaires are bad. He almost became a caricature of himself, and I think he couldn't really understand why no one else got that. But I think that's one of the things that generated this idea, because I think a lot of a lot of times libertarians, the Republicans, their ideas do not stand up to scrutiny. It's just a fact. Sometimes they're right. Now, where, where does capitalism work really well? It works really well when you have a true marketplace, when you have choice, when you have multiple entrants into a common market. The one thing that you have to prevent yourself against the gouger in groceries, for example, we need food. Why, aren't our, why isn't our food super expensive? It's not because we have choice. If someone gouges, we can walk down the street. With healthcare, if I have a heart attack in the next 30 seconds, 
can I negotiate? Can I go to Mercy and say, well, I'm, I'm having a heart attack. Uh, Mercy, what is what are you going to charge me? I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm going to go over to University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. We have the deserted island glass of water problem, Greg, which is if you're thirsty and someone offers you a glass of water, regardless of what that glass of water cost, you will pay anything to get that. That's a similar problem of healthcare. It's so obvious, anyone that can think can understand that, but yet we trumpet on with the virtues of the private marketplace. And I think that is something we just need, we just need to win on those. But the other, I think, big problem, and this is almost sort of a segue into something else, is that Bernie, and to some degree, he couldn't really help it, but he needed to, I think, have a little bit more of a sense of humor. I think that was a huge problem for him, is that he sort of had the whole grumpy Bernie thing, and that was a problem. I think one of the things when you look at Ronald Reagan, let's learn from him. I actually am a progressive. There's a lot that I actually like about Rob, uh, Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan. One of the things I really liked about Reagan is that he could be self-deprecating. He was funny. He was charismatic. He didn't take himself too seriously. He had a sense of humor. And I think FDR had the exact same thing. And that, I think, really is what made FDR one of these really transcendent politicians, is that he did have that sense of humor. So sort of moving forward, I think really one of the exciting things on the horizon is that we have a lot of dynamic new progressives on the horizon, like AOC. And I think that's what's really exciting, because I think what's next for the progressive movement for, for me is, you know, we have a lot of these really powerful ideas. We're on the right side of history. But what happens if we match? It's almost like a TED Talk. You walk up on the stage, Greg, and you say this. What happens if we match the power of the progressive idea and we mix it with a charismatic, telegenic leader? That is the potential of AOC and others like her in that movement where we can connect to progressive women, young people, I think the older generations, that's, I think, what's really exciting, and I think that's really what's going to be the legacy of Bernie, is not only the power of the ideas, not only being on the right side of the history, not only the multicultural coalition, but that he is able to provide this legacy of infrastructure to pave the way for the next generation of leaders. And I think that's what's really exciting, because so far, I feel like we've been fighting with one hand tied behind our back. We've been asking a 78-year-old man to lead the way for us, and he's done a really good job. But I think moving forward, I'm really excited to see what's on the horizon because AOC, she does have that, that charisma. I think my only issue with AOC, and I'm you know the number one fan of the AOC fan club, is I want her to show a little humility. And I also want progressives... I want us to celebrate the American military more often. You know, a lot of the people that serve in the military are heroes. They're working class people. Their moms are farm, farmers. Their dads were uh, working in factories. Uh, they come from all walks of life, and they're not responsible for the decisions that our leaders make. And so I want to see, and to your point, Greg, in terms of law enforcement, I want to really see a distinguishing between those men and women who serve with honor and dignity every day and respect and honor them and those that don't. But I think that's really a mistake that we've made. And I think moving forward, we got to learn, we got to self-diagnose in terms of what we could have done more effectively. But I think things look good uh, for the next five, 10 years in terms of the progressive movement, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And, and I think you're right that it, it sounds critical or negative or pessimistic or something, you know, trying to inventory and itemize where did the movement fail in this last election cycle. But those are really the points that need to be reflected on and discussed and changes need to be made in order to not do the same thing over and over and have the same outcome over and over. And where I spend most of my time, despite having what I think are generally kind of progressive views, I spend most of my time talking with Republicans and with moderates and looking for the positive in individuals and in groups and organizations. I try to find what's the positive, what's the common ground, what can we agree on? Um, and particularly at a time when there were a lot of... Um, you know, videos showing police brutality or something like that. Um, and that's important, you know, but 
I was trying to find videos of, you know, just an example was one on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. There was this police car going at high speed with the lights on and did a U-turn and suddenly pulled over and was helping somebody change their tire, you know? So, like, there are police out there that, that should be getting awards for what they're doing, and that's not to minimize or to, you know, set aside the problems that are there, but I think progressives can't only be the critics of the military and the critics of the police and the critics of whoever, there has to be that holistic view that says, you know what, there's a lot of good going on, there's a lot of bad going on, and we want to recognize both, and we want to honor and respect respect and show appreciation for those people who are, uh, you know, serving law, law enforcement or serving in the Army, and as you say, that's one area. Uh, and also the criticisms of the billionaires, you know, that's so easy to do. Find the billionaire that's that's the Pablo Escobar of billionaires and, and then let that person be the, the representative of all billionaires. But so I would go around trying to find, you know, positive stories of billionaires. There was one that was buying islands and building homes for refugees. Uh, you know, there's so many stories of generosity and innovation and an absence of greed. Um, so we, we need to kind to emphasize that sort of influence with sticks and carrots not just with sticks and with being inspired i mean you think about what barack obama accomplished one of the things i cannot stand when progressives critique obama because he wasn't perfect i think one of the things that obama did do is that he was inspiring we have this inspirational part of our history in the united states starting from our nation's founders uh, through Abraham Lincoln, through Teddy Roosevelt, through Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as well as Eleanor Roosevelt, our women suffragists, people that believed in the power to change, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. And that's part of our story. And that the only way I think you can really create a movement is you got to inspire people. And Obama did that. And he's criticized because he wasn't perfect. And I think that's, I call it sort of the nose scrunchers, the people that suck on lemons. I've criticized Bill Clinton a lot, but one of the things that Bill, I think, did really well, he did two things very, very well. First is that he explained very complicated ideas in a simple way that anyone could understand. And two, I think he had a real gift for personal connection with people. He didn't take himself so seriously as well. And I saw a memory that he gave or that he shared at a memorial celebrating Hubert Humphrey. It was, uh, I think, the anniversary of Hubert Humphrey's death. And he said, you know, that Hubert, he really did some great things. You know, Hubert, he got things done. He wasn't one of those negative Nellies, criticizing others, sucking on lemons, offering no, criticizing others and offering no solutions of their own. And I always sort of remembered that. It's like, yeah, there are these people that just suck on lemons these negative Nellies, and it's like, you know what? Scrunching your nose and, and, not, and not really offering a solution, that's not really gonna get us anywhere. And I think with Bernie, as, as flawed as he was, you know what he did? He stood up, he fought, he got things done, he inspired us. And so I'm really, it's not, it's, it's really the end of the beginning. I think this, on Facebook the other day, I said this is really close to the Barry Goldwater election of 1964, and people are like, you're comparing Bernie to Barry Goldwater? Well, here's why I think it's true. Goldwater failed as a national candidate, but I think really what he did is he inspired a, a new movement to say, hey, look, we can move the needle in a new direction, but we have to be inspiring, we have to have a sense of humor, and he paved the way for Ronald Reagan. So similarly, I, I'm hoping that Bernie, even though he failed this time, he's going to pave the way for a new progressive movement that will ultimately solve these problems. Because this gets back to the original problem of Franklin Delano Roosevelt that he saw, is that capitalism has this thing where if it's unchained, if you don't regulate it, if you don't contain it, it can undercut the very things that make it work. But if you have a structure and you channel it, it can be the greatest wealth-creating engine that humanity has ever known. So that's what our task is, is to make it work. You brought up the monopoly capitalism. I wish I'd be focused more off of That is more of the critique of a lot of leftists towards capitalism. It's the monopolists. It's not mom and pop. It's not the mid-sized businesses. It's the people that have their 
foot on the throat of a lot of the central things that we need. So I think I'm optimistic. I think I'm looking forward to what's in store for the future. Um, certainly, it's going to provide us a lot of opportunities for chat, but. I think I think things are looking up. I'm an optimist by nature. I'm sort of a Pollyanna type of guy. And I think I'm really looking forward to what's in store for the progressive movement of the United States of America. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, you know, I would just add to that that in reflecting on what didn't work in 2016 and a little bit of what didn't work in 2020, uh, something to to avoid repeating is that. Um, you know, any sort of sentiment that would suggest there's a bag of deplorables or a basket of deplorables or whatever, those sort of negative spins or vilification of others, that the um, the progressives also need to find this or, or elaborate on what already exists, this kind of a transcendent view that would result in people reaching out further, reaching out with greater compassion, more listening than talking, greater understanding to hear concerns and to hear ideas and to maybe embrace some of the suggestions from those who think differently than them. Um, and, you know, because the bubble feels good sometimes, but the bubble also weakens us and the bubble also just isn't good. So the getting out of the bubble and, and going and talking to people that you can say, oh, you know, I like this, 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 and this about that person, and they happen to be conservative Republican, or, you know, I like this proposal that came from this person over here, and they, you know, they're more of a centrist, or whatever, that there need to be those natural, organic, healthy connections with others that build up others, that build unity, um, while, you know, at the same time, not losing sense of identity and, and the movement, but I, I think it's healthy for, for people to look for common ground with others. Agree 100%, Greg. And I think we're running out of time here. So I just want to thank you, the listeners, if you're still here with us for the first Rocking Cast. We got a lot of good episodes in store. Uh, some of the episodes on the horizon are going to be one, how do we decide who to trust with experts? One of the issues that we're facing right now as a state is what sources do we trust in terms of shelter in place versus not? How do we decide what role the lay people have in making those decisions? So that's one issue that we're going to assess. Other issues, episodes that we're going to have, we're going to focus on recent decisions by our local city council. Uh, this is going to be a podcast about virtually everything. In terms of politics, we're going to cover local, state, and national issues. In particular, we're going to cover a recent decision by the Iowa City Council to reject clean energy in the city of Iowa City in terms of a solar installation. We'll talk about the uh, positives and negatives of that decision. So that is our first episode. For those of you who are all here, uh, congratulations, you made it through. Uh, we're excited to see what's in store. And once again, Greg, I really want to thank you for being part of this very first episode of the Rockney Cast. Thanks, Rockney. It's totally been a pleasure. Really enjoy it and look forward to uh, more opportunities to join you. We certainly will. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you.